this morning a study that I've entitled The Horrors of Hollywood Holiness. And I did that to get your brain spinning a little bit. I figured that might stimulate you somewhat. As we begin this morning, Jesus is going to begin a series of instructions to the people, to the masses, to the multitudes, to his disciples. And it's no small thing that he begins with an issue that I think has increased over time, not only in the world, but certainly in the body of Christ, and that is hypocrisy. It is staggering to me as your pastor. It is staggering to me as a man who loves Jesus to see how many Christians declare on Sunday one thing and they live another way on Monday. How they boldly profess Christ while they're standing with Christians and the moment the slightest bit of trouble comes. All of a sudden, well, you know, I kind of sort of go to church every once in a while. How we declare God's word to be truth when we're standing with each other and when it's questioned in the workplace or in the marketplace, all of a sudden it's something that we can debate. This morning, the danger, the horror, the Hollywoodness, if you will, of hypocrisy. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, Lord, we pray that you just correct this in our lives. God, we want to be the same as you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what we know about you and what we proclaim here in this church, we want to proclaim outside these walls. Lord, we don't want to be different people when we're around Christians than we are when we're around non-Christians. Lord, we don't want to declare something that's truth because we read it in our Bible, in a Bible study, and then deny it the moment it gets confronted in the world. And so, God, we ask this morning that you would instruct us by the power of your word. Lord, that you'd give us strength to stand in these evil days. We give you this time. We ask that you'd speak to us through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Verse 1. And in the meantime, so remember he's already addressed a crowd of people in the last passage. When an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so the crowd has grown. This confrontation that Jesus has already had as he's begun to speak of these truths into the body's life, as the multitudes now even swell further, so that they trampled one another. He began to say to his disciples, first of all, and so he looks at his disciples first in the multitude. Extremely important that you pick up on that point. Jesus is saying to his disciples first, to the church First, to those who profess Christ first, to those who know what God's Word says first. In the hearing of a great multitude, John, hear this. Peter, listen to what I'm saying. 
Andrew, this is for you. James, you better listen up. We need to listen up. Because there is a grave danger of the church losing its power in the world. And that grave danger is based in us saying one thing and living another. Professing on Sunday that we believe this truly is the Word of God. But come Monday, we deny most of what's in it. With our lives and with our actions. As we look at the world around us, certainly no place is this issue more true than it probably is in Hollywood. It is amazing to me when you look at those people, how many of them play biblical roles, or how many of them will act like they're just this sweet, pristine thing on the screen. And then you find the very debauched way that they actually live their life. Men like Mel Brooks produce a movie like The Passion of the Christ, and yet can't complete a sentence without using the Lord's name in vain. Walking down that red carpet to go receive their Oscar and following it with some vulgar tirade while spending, on average, $30,000 each just to get dressed for the evening. While proclaiming with their lips, oh, I'm for the poor. I'm doing all this work in Africa. Make no mistake, for the most part, the only reason that stars get involved in anything that looks like philanthropy is because they need a tax break. They can write that off. And I'm not saying all. But I'm telling you, our world's a mess. And we have the answer. So don't join in in the mess. Speak the truth. God demands it of us. And I want to take just a moment to address something that, quite frankly, bothers me in the church. Roughly $10.8 billion were spent on movie tickets in 2012. Of that, roughly 80% of them were bought by professing Christians. Can I say to you that a vast majority of those movies watched dishonored the Lord? And yet we spent $7.94 billion promoting things with which we vehemently Disagree, according to our Bibles. Am I trying to be a cosmic killjoy? No, I'm trying to tell you how all this creeps into your life. This is what happens. You go and you sit down and you spend two and a half hours watching something you shouldn't watch. And agreeing with something with which you should not agree. And now just extrapolate it out into your life, and as you sit there in those conversations, as you're talking about stuff that you shouldn't even know about, all of a sudden, you don't have the truth in view. You have the lie in view. You profess that you should live your life holy when you're in church. 
But when you get around that group of people who likes to drink socially, all of a sudden you have a different view. Well, I don't really know when they're getting drunk. That's between them and God. Well, you know, is recreational pot smoking actually different than getting drunk? If I hear another Christian utter those words, I'm going to slap them. You see, we need to have exactly one standard, and it's His. And He's declared it in His Word. And to be anything different is to be hypocritical. That word that we use, hypocrite, comes from an original Greek root word, hypocrisis. And it used to mean to give an answer. But over time, as language does evolve and meaning changes, if you don't believe that, the word sick now means good. Amen? That's sick, man. Which means it's awesome. Go figure. The word hypocrite used to be someone who was maybe an actor, a reciter of poetry, an, an orator of some kind. But it has gradually come to the place to where it has absolutely no positive meaning whatsoever. And in our world, it certainly has no positive meaning. And in your Bible, it has no positive meaning. It's not a good thing. You you see, somehow, the church has begun to think that being different on Monday than what you were on Sunday, is acceptable. That we sit here and we talk about subjects like abortion or perhaps gay marriage. Maybe we sit around and talk about how we ought to never divorce. But come Monday, well, if I were married to that jerk, I'd leave him too. We snicker, but that's what happens. That's what happens. And frankly, it's time the church stood up. God's Word says what it says. It means what it says. And we should be doing what it says and then telling other people exactly what it says. It's not open to interpretation. There's exactly one interpretation of all Scripture. God intended to communicate an idea. There's much application that can be made. But if you rightly observe the text, it says what it says. Translation, it's never good to be a hypocrite, period. Period. And so Jesus says, in the meantime, while an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what Jesus is, is, being, is saying here. Throughout Scripture, we see the term leaven used, and it's normally used in a negative connotation. There's a couple of times when it's used in somewhat of a positive connotation. We're going to get to one shortly. But the fact of the matter is, what leaven does is that it fills with gas. It blows up. 
It gets hot. It causes things to expand. And what Jesus is saying, beware of what the Pharisees are doing. What were the Pharisees doing? You now know, we just finished the passage. What does Jesus say to them? Look, you guys are like tombs. Oh, you're all sparkly on the outside. Frankly, it was evil. Paul uses in the New Testament almost exclusively leaven as a really bad thing. Let me tell you the dangers of putting too much yeast in something. Nothing good happens, amen? You throw too much yeast and some bread dough, right over the top it goes. It starts out kind of tiny. You don't need much of it. And it begins to affect the whole batch. That's where Jesus is going. And all of a sudden, pride takes over. Protecting your character takes over. What you think is your character. Being a man pleaser takes over. And notice the second thing here. Just like Hollywood, it is fake, it is foolish, and it is futile. Amen? Think about it for a second. What does Jesus say? For there's nothing covered that won't be revealed. He begins now to expound on this principle. He said, look. There's nothing in your life that one day isn't going to be revealed, whether it's revealed here and now, in this moment in time, or whether it's revealed later, or whether it's revealed in heaven, you can't pull it over on God, period. Nor hidden that won't be known, and therefore whatever you've spoken in dark will be heard in the light. And what you've spoken in the ear in the inner room will be proclaimed from the housetops. It's funny how we think we get away with so much. You utter those little things in the secret of your own heart, your mind, that's one thing. But when you speak them to another person, God says, be careful. You have here really ought to be an epiphany to each of us. Something the light just goes on. Because whether you think you get away with it or not, one day it's going to be revealed, period. Everything. In fact, your Bible says that one day even your idle words will be revealed. The things that you didn't think mattered. Your friends usually figure it out. Your kids almost always figure it out. If you've been a parent for more than a week, you realize that you can't pull them over on your kids. Your spouse is going to figure it out. In fact, I think our, our wives have that. It's near their spleen. It's the anti-hypocrisy thing. The truth ultimately gets shouted from the rooftop. It gets known and gets exposed. So why not let it shine now? 
Why not just speak the truth in love now? Why not, while we're still on this earth, alive and able to accomplish things for the kingdom, simply be bearers of the light? Frankly, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I know how you get into those situations. But I don't know how we can profess out of one side of our mouths to be living for God and doing exactly the opposite of what he says. Interesting little passage, and it's you don't need to turn there. You can mark it in your Bible, in your notes. But there in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 23, Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he gives a warning to them. And it's in the negative context of doing what you're told. And it is, is there said this way. They're, they're told, look, go into the promised land, do what you're supposed to do, but if you do not do it, if you don't do it, you can't escape it. Your sin will find you out. You see, because nothing escapes God. And he goes on to say, picking up in verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, now he tones it down a little bit. And I love this. I think he initially intended to shock them, and I realize I've been a little bit strong, a little preachy, but it's okay. We need that every once in a while. And he says, look, friends, he's now going to identify the problem. He's going to tell us why we get into so much trouble. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. You already see it. It's so come into view for you already. It's a fear of man, isn't it? How many people, because they're afraid of what some other person thinks, abandons the truth of God's Word? The church is doing it right now. The church universal, the church global. Amen? I'm pretty sure my Bible has a lot to say about some of the moral issues that we face in our country. God's not pro-abortion, I can tell you that. God is not pro-gay marriage, I can tell you that. God is not pro-us sitting around drunk out of our minds, I can tell you that. He is not for legalizing marijuana or anything else that causes you to end up diminished mentally. There's a lot of things that the world is saying, well, we just think it ought to be different. Can I say to you, it's hypocritical to accept the salvation that's offered by grace and through faith and to then not, not uphold what God's Word clearly says on these social and moral issues? It's disingenuous and hypocritical. Why are you afraid of those who can kill the body? And after that, have no more that they can do. That is a truth. There is exactly one extreme measure that the world can do to you, and that's to take your life. Now, none of us relish in that, amen? If you've got a death wish in here, we need to talk. I don't want you out of a death wish. But I know this. 
There's only one thing the world can ultimately do to me, and that's take my life, period. And if I die, winner. I go home to glory. I'm out of here and up there. And I like y'all, but I'd rather be at home, which is heaven. Jesus is saying, man, you need to have an eternal perspective on this. But I will show you to whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast you into hell. Yes, I say, fear him. Because there is a fate worse than physical death. And if you don't know Jesus, you got huge problems. It's one thing to have problems here on earth. It's another thing to have problems when you reach eternity. And he goes on to say, and I love the way he just brings this all to us in a way that we can digest it, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God. This was next to a bundle of sticks, the smallest offering that you could take into the temple. Two sparrows, common sparrows, field birds. And these two copper coins were actually uh, coins that really didn't even amount to being called money. They were kind of like, you know, you would trade, you know, some little article when you you go to school and like, well, I'll give you two rubber bands, you give me a paper clip. It was that bad. They're worth nothing. And not one of those birds who's worth nothing ultimately in this world, not one of them falls to the ground that God doesn't know about it. If you've ever wondered if God cares about you, if you've ever wondered if God has you in view, if you've ever been tempted to think that perhaps the Lord somehow forgot where you were, what you were doing, what's going on in your life, remember this. He knows exactly where you are. And He knows exactly what you're doing. And He then re-emphasizes this by saying, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And do not fear, therefore, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. And that word is a, a myriad, a multitude, a flock. All of them, basically, is the picture. You see, the fear of man is a snare, exactly as Proverbs 29 says. It's a snare. It's a trap. Can't tell you how many people have ended up marrying somebody because they're afraid of saying, you know what, this isn't working out. I blew it. I can't tell you how many people have taken jobs because they would not speak the truth to their employer and end up in trouble. People end up in jail every day because of the fear of man. You don't believe it? Look at gang life. It's the fear of man. And I'm not saying it's not real, by the way. I'm simply saying, as the body of Christ, who do we really fear? Isn't it strange that we fear man and we don't fear God? Can I say to you that that is exactly what gets people in trouble? Is they don't fear God. 
They just fear people. They fear men. They fear what people might say, what they might think. And it's hypocritical. The Pharisees were more concerned about their reputation than they were about their character. Amen? They were worried about what someone else said than what God knew. Huge difference. Brings a snare into our lives. It's okay to be concerned as long as we have the right kind of fear. There is a healthy fear. But it's not what man thinks, it's what God thinks. And God has and shows here His amazing pity on us. And I love this. He says, look, I do care. Deuteronomy chapter 22 says he actually knows how many eggs are in a bird's nest. So when you look at that concept, we know that God knows. We don't need to be afraid. But we do need to be respectful. The word that's used here, numbered, in numbering the hairs on your head, it's kind of an interesting concept. The average middle-aged guy has about 100,000 or so hairs on your head. You didn't know that. I'm not suggesting you go home and count them. But if you're in the middle someplace, around 100,000, you lose about 75 a day, by the way, by natural hair loss. But the word that God uses here is a very unique word. It's actually the Greek word, arithmeo, from which we get arithmetic. In other words, it's not just a numerical value he's assigned to them. He's actually put them into some formula. He says, look, every one of these things matters. The hairs on your head count that I'm pretty sure you matter to God. And I matter to God. We matter to God. That's how concerned he is. So why do we not fear Him? How many people in their lives will openly do in the face of an all-knowing God what they will not do in the face of a friend? Because they're worried about what that friend thinks. They will not stand for the truth in front of the friend. You see where Jesus is going with this? We're to fear God. And if you have that fear, it conquers all of the rest of the fears. You don't need to worry about the rest of them if you have that one right. Truth is truth. How to avoid it. Verse 8. Notice how Jesus begins to tie these things together. And also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. And before anybody freaks out, he's not talking about forfeiting your salvation. Because your Bible says there in Second Corinthians chapter 5 that one day every one of us is going to stand before God. And we're going to give an account for all that we've done in this life and be rewarded for those things which are good. You see, what he's really saying is, I would like to have something to brag about you to the angels about. 
But if there isn't anything to brag about, there isn't anything to brag about. I would like to confess before the angels in heaven, have you seen my servant, Karen? Look what's going on in her life. Did you see what Dave and Julie did yesterday? It was awesome. Don't you want God to brag about you to the angels in heaven? Don't be a hypocrite. Stand for Him. Confess Him. Notice where we do that. It's one thing to say, God, I love you. When we worship the Lord, we do that, yeah? Lord, I love you. I'm offering my worship to Him. But how about when you stand before people? Do you have less zeal? Maybe a little less power in your voice. When we're here, we love God, but when we're there, well, yeah, I go to church. I'd like Jesus to be able to brag about us before the angels. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And focus in on the angels part because it helps you get the right context here. And in view here is really those two worlds. One that's eternal and one that's this world. One that is heaven that awaits. One is the here and now. And frankly, when we get there, our time is going to be over of having done things for which Jesus could brag about us. You only get to do that while you're here. Make sure that you've done some things that Jesus can brag about. Sometimes we often look at this passage and it's wrongly interpreted like you could somehow lose your salvation. And, and I just want to tell you that that's not what's being taught here at all. So don't freak out if that's you. If maybe previously somebody gave you an interpretation of this that somehow God's going to deny you because you denied him. Let me give you an example. Peter. Amen? How about Stephen's example before that? Stephen says, don't, uh, don't, don't hold this against them as he's being stoned. But Peter, how many times did he deny the Lord? Three. In twelve hours. And yet Jesus went and hunted him down after he was resurrected. Amen? To make sure that Peter knew he was forgiven. So don't buy the lie that Jesus is saying that you're going to forfeit your salvation because maybe you biffed it at work yesterday. Okay? But what he is saying is I'd sure like to be able to brag about you. I'd sure like to have some wonderful things that the angels would get jealous over. Make sure that that's going on in your life. Because when you get to that Bema seat of Christ, you want to have something that Jesus can brag about. He ends with a very perilous warning here. And I don't want to overemphasize this, but I did tell you that this was coming a few weeks ago. And so as we read this, verse 10 goes on to say, For anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, 
it will not be forgiven. Now he is talking about what happens eternally. He said it's not the simple denial, it's the outright rejection. It's not you blew your witness someplace, you listened to some joke you shouldn't have heard, and you snickered and laughed. I've had people come into well, I was at school yesterday, and I, I laughed at a bad joke, and they really thought they were going to lose their soul. If that's you, be set free. But here's the danger. In being a hypocrite and continuing that practice for long periods of time, how do you really know that you're actually one of God's kids? Do you know, in fact, that the love of God dwells in you? That the Holy Spirit dwells in you? And so he says, and now when they bring you to the synagogues and the magistrates and authorities, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to answer it says or what you should say but the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour how you ought to speak or what you ought to say and so he gives them a perilous example and let me help you just briefly you see before the Lord was on this earth during the Old Testament times and while the Lord was on this earth during the New Testament times, and before the Lord Jesus went to the cross, then it was quite possible to deny the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit was the witness of the Messiah that was to come. There will be another unpardonable sin, which will happen during the tribulation of days, and that will be to receive the mark of the beast. That also appears to be unforgivable. But there really is only one thing now that falls into that category. Because Jesus Christ has paid the price. He died the death. He's been raised. He lives forevermore. And that is to reject the one, the only way that mankind can be saved. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. That's the only thing that's unforgivable. Because he is the only way and the only truth and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. So if you reject Him, you've done the one thing you can't do. Beyond that, let me just say to you, the grace of God that saves you is the grace of God that keeps you. The grace of God that's able to rescue us from all of our sin is also able to save us when we blow it. And so the disciples begin to think on these things. And what he's really done is illustrate exactly how deep this principle of not being a hypocrite goes. He says, look, you don't want to have things in your life about which Jesus can't brag about you to the angels. You don't want to do things in your life that speak exactly the opposite of who you are as a child of God. You don't want to simply take up the majority view because they're louder and bolder. You want to speak about that which is the actual will of God. And of course, that's revealed in His Word. You see, when we think on these things, ultimately, the world says otherwise. Amen? The world says it doesn't matter. And in fact, the world largely holds the view that the Bible is not inspired. 
that it's not actually God's word, that it really isn't truth, that it doesn't actually mean what it says, and it doesn't say what it means. I think it's time that we as the church said that's not true. And I know that brings conflict. It sure does for me. Can I give you a little secret here? When you're doing counseling, there is a huge temptation to agree with whatever situations and conditions exist. There's a huge temptation to agree with modern psychology. There's a huge temptation to say, well, you know, if I were in that situation, I would have done the same thing. But I can't. I, I can't deny what I know God's Word says. And so you know what I'm going to tell you? God hates divorce, and He loves forgiveness. He wants restoration and reconciliation, and you are going to hate my guts at times. When you come in and you say, well, you know, we're planning on having this party. You know, is it really wrong for us to get together and have a few beers? I'm going to say, yep, and here's why. Because you might cause your weaker brother to stumble. Somebody may look at you and associate you with that type of lifestyle that the world lives, and that will damn them. And so maybe you have the individual liberty, but the moment you put that individual liberty out to somebody else, you may have actually caused them to stumble. So I'm going to tell you, nope, you probably shouldn't do that. And you're going to go, I hate you. I can't believe how many people that I've talked to recently. Well, I don't know why you're so against medical marijuana. Let me tell you why. Because I haven't met a smart stoner yet. (laughs) And I don't want you token driving down the 330 because I want to live to get home to my family, okay? There's all kinds of things that the world says, well, you know, is it really that bad? You know, how come two people who are committed to each other, just because they happen to be both male or both female, how come they can't get married? Because my Bible says so. And God invented marriage. So I'm going to take his stand on it. It's going to make me very unpopular. May even get me thrown in jail eventually. But you know what? I don't fear man. I fear God. I don't want to be displeasing to the Lord. I want to be pleasing to God. And so I've got to say what He says and do what He says. You see, the danger here was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin could make your life a miserable, living hell. And they were about to do that exact thing to Jesus. In fact, they were going to kill him. The world can make your life miserable. The world can give you all kinds of problems. You've got a choice to make, and so do I. Am I going to have the Hollywood kind of holiness? Or am I going to be well-pleasing to God? 
Let me give you one final example, and I'm going to ask the elders to begin to hand out the elements of communion. And while you receive them, hold them in your hand, and we'll take them together. But I want to give you perhaps the greatest example of hypocrisy found in your Bible. And though you're going to be receiving those elements, so it's going to be tough for you to to hold on to your Bible and that at the same time, you can mark it for later in Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And it says there in verse 17, And now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? You all know the context of this particular passage of Scripture. And he said, Go into the city, and a certain man find him, and say to him, The teacher says, For my time is at hand, and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And so the disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover meal. So a very simple meal would have had many things other than just the bread and the wine. They would have had some little sprigs of bitter herbs. They would have celebrated a Jewish Passover. There would have been a a boiled egg. There would have been all these things that reminded them of their bondage in Egypt. They would have celebrated what we call a, a Seder, the Passover meal. But it was at the end of the meal that we pick up the story. And when evening had come, they sat down with the twelve, and now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. Talk about the power of hypocrisy. Think about it. We all know who this is. It's become a byword in our society. Not a good thing to be called a Judas, is it? Pretty much the whole world knows what that word means, used in that context. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, rightly being introspective, is it I? Is it me? You see, there's a good place for you to turn inside. Look at yourself, saying, Lord, am I doing, am I being, is there something in my life that should not be there? Is there anything that I'm currently engaged in? Family of God, can I ask you to be introspective this morning as you take those elements in your hand? Is there something that you need to take to the Lord and say, Lord, is it me? Does this bother you? Maybe you're not convicted yet, and you need conviction. Would you seek the Lord right now? Is it I? And he answered and said, and you talk about the world's greatest hypocrite. He who dipped his hand with me in this dish will betray me. Judas was sitting next to Jesus. He was in a place of honor. The Lord Jesus, knowing everything is God, still had not kicked Judas out of the fold, still had not been to that place where perhaps we could look at it 
and say, you know, why didn't Jesus just kick him out? I mean, after all, Jesus knew what he was going to do. You see the compassion of the Lord towards our weakness. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. It was all planned. God knew from the beginning what would happen. Jesus knew what would happen. But notice what he says. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. You see, Judas was a hypocrite because it tells us so in verse 25. Then Judas, who was betraying him. Do you get it? He's sitting at the table dipping his bread with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thinking nobody's going to know. I'll just do what everybody else does and I'm going to get away with it with my 30 pieces of silver. You talk about hypocrisy. He could have stood up and said, it is me, because he knew what he was doing. Could have walked out. Answered and said, you talk about a show. Rabbi, is it I? And Jesus said to him, it is as you have said. Jesus knew all along, and so did Judas. And he puts on this show. Family of God, you hold the bread and the cup in your hand. And I just want to say to you, don't make it a show. It needs to be real. This is his body, which was broken for you. And this is the cup of the new covenant, his blood shed for the remission of sin. It's not cracker and juice. It's symbolic of what Jesus did on the cross. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and blessed it and broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, Take eat, for this is my body. Would you partake together? And he took the cup. And he gave thanks and gave it to him. Judas was still sitting there. Drink of it. All of you. Jesus held nothing back. Let's partake of the cup. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Notice it doesn't say all. Why is that? Because Judas was a hypocrite. There are a lot of people who think they've pulled it over on God. 
that somehow in all their churchiness that God doesn't see what's in their heart. I pray that's not any of us. For the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the cross. Lord, for the beauty of the symbolism of what you did. Lord, that your back would be ripped open for us. That your blood would flow down from that cross, Lord, resting on this wretched earth. God, that your side, Jesus, your side, will, when we get to heaven, bear the mark of that Roman spear. Lord, that as your word declares, your hands and feet, the very inscription of your love to us. God, help us to proclaim who you are to this world. Lord, help us to live our lives for you. Help us to never waver in the truth of your word. Help us to receive with gladness and then live with boldness. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thanks for loving us. Thank you for the work of the cross that's cleansed us and made us white as wool. Help us to live that way, Lord. Help us to speak that way, God. We bless you. We praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.